Choose Linux, episode 17, for September 5th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 17. And we've got quite a varied one today, but let's start with what you've been up to, Elle. You've been doing a bit of hardware hacking. I have. You know, I go to all these conferences and I see these guys walking around with these big blinky badges that are programmed to do all kinds of light shows and have screen displays. And I had a little bit of envy. But I also had a lot of fear of not really being a hardware person or knowing how to get started. So a friend of mine said, why don't you try out the Badgie? And I went in line and checked it out. And you can think of the Badgie as like this 2.5-inch electronic billboard that you can program to really do or say whatever you want. It's um, a black and white e-reader screen. And you, I've seen it used for everything from, let's say, doing a Twitter feed that shows every time someone uses a certain hashtag to show scores for a game to basically kind of show news outlets um, as they're updating in real time. But I wanted something simple. All of that just seemed really intimidating. And I have to admit that when I ordered it, it sat in a box for a about a month because I just didn't really know how to get started. When I reached out to the community, they said, have you tried looking at their GitHub? (laughs) So I went to their GitHub and it was really as simple as, hey, clone this repo, download the Arduino software, which is really just a click to install, then copy and paste this config file into the Arduino and push to install, you're done. It was really as simple as that. So it's really kind of gotten me interested in being able to use the Arduino a bit more. And I know Alex from Self Hosted made all of us these little on-air signs that we're supposed to be able to flash and kind of program the lights into doing things. And when I opened it up, guess what's in there? The same Arduino. So it really should be the same as just copy pasta into that Arduino and pushing up the file to be able to change the lights. Have you guys gotten a chance to play with any of that? I haven't had a chance to play with mine yet. It's been sitting on top of my desk, staring at me, and I keep wanting to crack it open and start playing with it, but I just have not had the time. Yeah, same. I've been looking at it and just keep thinking, I'm going to get around to it, I'm going to get around to it, but just time, I just never have enough time. So kind of hats off to you for actually being able to do it. Have you um, managed to get it going and flashing different lights and stuff then? So the big part that I'm missing is actually setting up Home Assistant so that I can do it wirelessly. And I think that's going to be the next step, kind of where this journey takes me. But before I get to that, I think I want to play around with the badgie a little bit more. Right now I have it saying, hello, my name is at Elopunk, and I plan on wearing that at conferences. But I think that if I can just maybe take a little step to be a bit more technical and figure out how to work with API calls, because it's not difficult. It's literally just going into the config file and finding the correct section to change. But I've never done a lot of code compiling or anything, so I have to admit that whenever I try to compile the code and it fails, I get a little more down on myself. (laughs) So just kind of got to get over that and keep trying. And I think the badgie is a great way. Like the worst that happens is my code doesn't compile and I control Z and my device is working again. Nice. So with the Arduino software, is that pretty straightforward and GUI based then? 
It really was. Um, I think the only thing I had to do in the command line was run the install script. So I downloaded it. I, it told me exactly, you know, where to go whenever I was following the install, the install instructions. Then I opened up the command line, went to that folder, did the dot backslash name of file, and it was installed. So one command line instruction is all you really have to do. Well, I know I'm looking forward to giving this a shot. I'm really lamenting that my sign is not up yet because I should be able to just hit a button on my phone or my computer and have it light up outside of my booth so that my wife knows to be nice and quiet while I'm trying to record a podcast. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do with it. Because at the moment, I have to just send a message saying, I'm starting now, please be quiet. And then, okay, I'm finished. But yeah, it would be really cool to get into that. And it sounds like this is the first step to that, really. I mean, Alex made it sound really easy because he does this stuff all the time, but I've never done any Arduino stuff or any hardware hacking of any description. So I can totally sympathize with your apprehension, L. But it sounds like that that's unwarranted and that it is actually fairly straightforward to get into then. I will warn you, it's a little bit addictive because once I had that it's up and it's running, I wanted to try something else. And I'm already planning on taking what I've learned from making the sign and programming it to actually setting up a tiara with the same light structure that I can change colors when I'm arriving at events based on what I'm doing. So I know it's a silly project, but it's a real hands-on way to see the things that you're learning, which I think really is what was missing from my server-side experience. So if I do want to get into this, how do I get started with it then? So I always tell you guys that I have a great community on Twitter, and one of them has stepped up and actually written a guide on their blog, Security Endeavors, and we'll link to that in the show notes, that goes step-by-step on what you need to do to get your badgie up and running, and that can be used for anything that you're doing with your Arduino. What I love is they made sure to actually include the step of ordering your badgie and then staring longingly at the box for a long time (laughs) because you have no idea how to get started. And Alex has got a pretty good blog post about his smart LED strips. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. I actually just purchased my first smart light, and I need to flash the firmware on it and get Home Assistant up and running myself to kind of get started there. But that's a project I'm really looking forward to. And Alex's blog has just so much detail for how to get going with this sort of thing. Yeah, and even a video walking you through it as well. Now, I will note that the video also includes step-by-step video instructions on how to install the Arduino software if you happen to I don't know, run into any issues. I don't think you will, but it's always good to have a backup. I don't know, Elle. I think you underestimate my ability to screw up instructions. <laughs> what did I tell you guys? I create the break fixes for this team. Don't try to step on my territory here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes then. All right, well, let's move on to distro hoppers. and. Last time, DistroWatch's random distribution button gave us Slackall, which is a Greek distribution based on Slackware and also Salix OS. It has been a very long time since I last used Slackware, so I was kind of going in fresh to this. And I must say I had a mixed experience with it. How did you two get on then? So the first problem that I had was I downloaded the wrong ISO. If you go to the website and just click the download button, it will give you 32-bit by default. Once I realized that mistake, I had to go in and actually dive through the file tree and find the latest 64-bit live CD ISO and flash that instead. 
once I got that going, it was pretty smooth sailing through the installer. Uh, the only issues I had there was I couldn't, for the life of me, get it to read a GPT partition. I had to reformat the disk as MS-DOS instead uh, before it would actually pick up my drives. Andrew, can I interrupt you here? Because what I want to know is how did you even get the installer going to begin with? Because I clicked the button and it's asking me for the root password to run the installer. Ah, yes. I had the same kind of issue where it pops up that dialog box and says, please enter the password for one. So I took a stab at it and just typed in one and hit OK. And sure enough, it went through the prompt and gave me the installer. Exactly what I did. Is this an old school thing that I should just know that OS is used to do? Yeah, generally speaking, it's either going to be the username or if it's root, then it'll be root or it'll be the username backwards, like tour or whatever. So that's what I would always try first is either the username or the username backwards. Well, and so this brings up my first nitpick. I went through the documentation to try to find where it says use the password one to begin installation. And I couldn't find it in their documentation, which to me is a bit of a problem. If you're trying to bring new users into your distribution, you should have installation instructions that are fairly fleshed out, at least to the point of getting people into the installer. Uh, So to me, that was a little not great. I think I'm going to be the naysayer here and say what documentation, Drew, because (laughs) I found a bunch of forum posts and some pictures, but nothing I would go as far as to call documentation. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. Basically, they're saying that the documentation is this one section on the forum that's labeled documentation, and it's pretty sparse. There's not a lot in there, and it really feels like the user is expected to just kind of know how Slackware and or Salix works in order to kind of make their way through. So I leaned a little bit on Slackware and Salix documentation to be able to get things going, but realistically... Shouldn't the distribution have its own documentation? Exactly. And I will say, if anyone decides to try this out, I highly recommend the Salix documentation because that I was impressed with. Now, once I actually did get it to recognize my drives and allow me to go through the installer, there weren't really any options. It's kind of just a, you're going to wipe everything and here's your OS. Really? That's not what I experienced at all. There was a a nice button that said partitions, which opened up Gparted, and I was able to create the relevant partition that I wanted. And then it just defaulted to that in the one-page installer. And so you could change that if you wanted and select the, you know, dev, SDA, whatever it was. Um, And then you just put in your username and password and root password. And that's it. It's just the simplest installer I've used for a long time. I was very impressed with it. Well, sure, but that's kind of my point is it is so simple that it doesn't have really any options for like dual booting or really anything else that you might want. So if you're getting ready to install this, just be aware that it's going to be all or nothing. Well, that's not true, really, because I had it dual booting with loads of, well, more than dual booting, multi-booting with uh, Ubuntu and a couple of other distros drives that are on that machine. And um, it all worked perfectly. Well, let me ask you a question there, though. Did it take over the Grub? And if so, did it detect your other distributions when you rebooted? Yes and yes. Ah, 
Very good. Okay, that's a little better than I had feared. So I really think, once again, we're running into the same issue where it comes down to hardware. Because I installed it originally on an old System76 box that I was allowed to borrow, and the process went just fine. However, when I tried to boot into a virtual machine, I ran into the Gparted issue. And then when I tried to go through the install on the XPS, I ran in through the same issue. So I'm not sure what makes up the difference, but I think, you know, experience does vary based on your hardware. Well, and let me ask you this, L. Did you run into the issue where after you went through Gparted, it wouldn't pick up the VDAs? Exactly. Yes. And I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. And it just kept as, you know, basically saying I couldn't move forward in the install process. And I just honestly started clicking a bunch of buttons, figuring what am I going to break? And eventually sorted itself out. Right. Yeah. It wouldn't pick up any uh, virtual disks for me at all. And so I couldn't get it going in a virtual machine at all. I would wish to tell you that there was a trick to it, but I literally just kept clicking on the long line showing the partition like over and over and then clearing it and over and eventually it just took it. So I don't know if that's a glitch that we should file a bug report on or it was the hardware just taking a while to catch up to that. I'm not sure. Now, we didn't mention this at the beginning, but there are a few different versions available, but it seems like Openbox is first on the list. So that's what we all went for. But it's not straight up Openbox it reminds me much more of LXDE. Yeah, I would agree with that, or possibly even a comparison to a very stripped-down version of XFCE. It's very reminiscent of old-school Windows, in a way. Yeah, you've got your panel at the bottom and the start menu in the bottom left and stuff. Yeah, it is reminiscent of old-school Windows, but that menu is not searchable, which gets very frustrating very quickly. Yeah, it's a little old school, isn't it? Yeah, that's actually the first thing that I had written on my notes to make sure to comment on was the fact that there was no quick type to search. And things weren't exactly where I thought they would be. For example, okay, I want to open up Firefox. I'm thinking that's going to be under applications or something, but it's under my network. And when I installed Slack, that ended up in my network as well, like by default. So I'm not sure if uh, the installs are as intuitive when it comes to that menu. Well, and speaking of installs... How did you all get on with uh, G-S-L-A-P-T? I'm just going to call it G-Slapped. <laughs> yeah, G-Slapped is what it was in my head as well. I got on very well with it. It reminds me very much of Synaptic. Yeah, and since I don't have really any experience with Slackware before now, I was actually, one thing that I really liked about it is that when you go to perform an upgrade or an installation or anything, it actually shows you a little description of each thing that it's processing as it's going, which I thought was pretty cool. One of the things that I did differently this time is I think I spent a lot of time just playing with the programs that already came installed with. So instead of um, installing something like Sublime Text, I just played with Genie. Yeah, I found the selection of software that comes on the base system to be pretty good. It's got everything that you kind of need for just browsing the web, writing documents, and general use computing. But as far as installing other applications, I only use G-Slapped, and I had some issues there. Uh, it seemed like the old dependency hell that we have all heard about in Slackware, in that 50% of the things that I installed either wouldn't launch or would present some dialogue saying, oh, this functionality is missing. Please install this package if you want this functionality. Yeah, now I said I had a good experience with G-Slapped, and that was... 
you know, in terms of the, the UI and UX and everything, but in terms of the functionality and, and actually getting software installed, I had the same issue as you. Even doing the updates, there was one, I think it was um, GVFS or something, that I had to hold back the update because that just was broken and would break the entire update. And then when installing things like Audacity, it installed perfectly quickly and no problem. But then when I went to open it from the menu, just nothing. Opened it from the command line and then found out that it had a bunch of missing dependencies. And it really made me appreciate apt and DNF and how good they are at dependency resolution. And it did feel very legacy, the fact that it would install something and not bother to go out and find the relevant dependencies. Yeah, well, that's Slackware all over, isn't it? I mean, not that I have a lot of experience with it, but I've heard the stories. Now, I told you guys that I went into the command line just so that I make sure I had something to report. So I go in, and first of all, I you know I try app, not it. All right, I'm trying all of the ones that I know just to make sure I'm not reinventing the wheel. So then I go to the documentation for Salix, and I find that the command I'm looking for is S-L-A-P-T get, so slapped get. And so I do slap get dash I and I end up messing up my user password, which normally has the little feedback that says, you know, you will be reported. And this one made me laugh because what you get when you mess up your password is the comment, you'll starve. <laughs> <laughs> did either of you try updating your kernel? No, I did not. Did it break? No, actually, it went fine. But this is one of the areas that they actually have it documented properly. And in that documentation, it instructs you to essentially do an LS to find out what kernel modules you have installed already, and then to use slapped get to install the updates for those specific packages. And then it's very specific about this. You have to run update grub before rebooting. Otherwise, you may end up with a non-booting system. So just another example of why Slackle makes me appreciate the modern distros where all of this is handled in the background. So I'd like to get y'all's opinion on Conky, because when you first boot up, the first thing that opens up is Conky, and I hope that's how you say it. And it just gives you kind of a live feed of what resources you're using, how much CPU you're using, your Wi-Fi connection. And though I don't understand why I would need that on my desktop, maybe I don't do enough gaming to warrant that. I did really wish that I could have had that when I was using OpenStack environments, because it is a really good monitoring tool. Oh, Conky's great. Conky has all kinds of options and things that you can do. You can feed it all different sorts of information from really just about anything and have it display that either in a window or on your desktop. I did find the choice to have it in a window a little odd instead of just displaying it against the background. But I don't know. I thought the base Conky config that they're using was actually really informative. Yeah, and I actually liked that it was in a window because it meant that if you didn't want it, it was trivial to just close it. Just click the X, it's gone. That's very true. And, you know, I feel like we've maybe been a little harsh on this, but to be real, I think that anybody who really wants to get close to Linux roots should give Slackle a try, if not for any other reason, just to see kind of what things were like back in the day. And, you know, the software that I installed was all very up to date. 
it does seem like a well-loved distribution, and surely it's fitting some people's needs, possibly those who've been with Linux since 1992 when Slackware was king. So realistically, it's not a bad distro. It's just a distro that has a different set of ideals from what we're used to. We've talked a little bit about the software that they've chosen to install, like Genie and, you know, Conky and doing it in an application window. I really hope I'm saying Conky right. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But I, I noticed another one that was QT4 Designer. And I'm like, what is this? And I must admit that I spent a good 15 minutes dis, uh, designing little web application pop-up buttons that like, you know, here, click this. And it was fun. I don't have a use case for it, but there must be a reason they thought it was important enough to install install it by default. Well, yeah, I think for a lot of developers, this would be a really good environment to work in. It's very simple and very geared towards people who know the inner workings of Linux. Yeah, but that said, I don't think any of us are going to stick with this long term, are we? No, I don't think I will. Um, I think if I, I could give any feedback to the development team, I'd really say maybe update the website a little bit so that we have some better documentation and we could get a better idea of what this OS was targeted for. I think I would agree with that statement, Tell. Yeah, I can't disagree. Right, let's go to DistroWatch then. Click the random distribution button. Ah, Android x86. Now, I've used this quite extensively. Have you two ever used this before? Never have. I have never used Android on anything but an ARM chip and a phone. Right, well... What it is, is pretty much Android as you'd expect it, kind of a tablet-ish version, but runs on any laptop, or most laptops at least. So it'll be interesting. You two don't have a touchscreen device, do you? I don't, sadly. So Android with a mouse. You'll, you'll see how that works out. Yes. So Drew, you have a condition called sleep apnea, and you have a, a CPAP machine. Uh, I don't even know what CPAP stands for, do you? I do. It stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And essentially what it is, is it's a machine that I hook up to my face with a mask that will keep my airways open in case I stop breathing or uh, have obstructed breathing in the middle of the night, which is a condition that can, under extreme circumstances, cause death. Now, fortunately for me... I only have a moderate condition instead of a major one, but it still helps me get a good night's sleep rather than waking up feeling super groggy and like I just haven't gotten any rest. Right, but what does this have to do with Linux and open source software? So I was on Linux Unplugged once, and during the pre-show, Chris and I were talking about CPAPs, and the IRC started going crazy talking about different newer models of CPAPs, and specifically about this piece of software called Oscar. Now, Oscar is a piece of FOSS software that runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux, of course, that will decode the data from your CPAP and present it to you in a very detailed way. So I thought I'd give this a shot. Pulled the uh, SD card out of my CPAP and popped it into my laptop loaded up Oscar, and created a profile. And sure enough, it asked me to import the data from the SD card. Once I did, I was presented with just so much information about my sleep habits. It shows me just 
way more than I bargained for. Uh, it's almost a little overwhelming the first time you look at it. But fortunately, there's tooltip text on just about everything that will tell you exactly what each little bar represents. And if you go to their excellent documentation, it will also tell you about all of these terms, what they mean, and how to interpret them. So I feel like I know a lot more about my sleep habits just from having opened this a few times than I ever did before, way more than when my doctor explained the condition to me. And if you've ever used any other kind of sleep tracker, like a Fitbit or a Pebble or even an Apple Watch, the sleep tracking that you'll get from a CPAP is like over the top as far as how much information you're getting. So what we're talking about here, the the different types of sleep and how much of that you get? Yes, it will show me everything from the amount of time I spent with obstructed pathways to the amount of time I spent where I just stopped breathing for a little bit and the machine has to pick up and do some work. It shows me the pressure over time. It even shows me when I'm snoring. One thing that new users should note is that not all CPAP machines are supported. So I would check the documentation on their website to make sure that your machine is a supported model before you try to get started. Is this where we include, please discuss with your medical professional before trying to make changes based on the data that you've collected? (laughs) Absolutely. This is not a replacement for speaking with your sleep specialist. So looking at, you know, the documentation on the website for this, how easy would you say that it is for somebody to just kind of get started and set this up so that they can look at their own data? So to install it is extraordinarily simple. There are Debian packages available for Debian and its derivatives, and a very helpful soul has created a uh, RPM-based version of it in Copper, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But as far as interpreting the data, I think that that takes a little bit more research because it is dealing with medical terms. So I wouldn't expect to go in and just have everything fully explained for you. It is anticipating that you're going to have to do a little bit of research here and there to find out what each of these things actually means. Now, really to the credit of the people in the apnea community, this piece of software, if you click the help drop down, it gives you an online user's guide and a sleep disorder terms glossary directly within the application that will then open a website to help you understand all of these terms. It is worth noting that Oscar is a fork of the now defunct Sleepyheads project, and I'm not entirely sure when or why that happened, but the Sleepyheads project has shut down, and people should be using Oscar at this point. But there is a bit of controversy there, isn't there? The original author, Mark Watkins, um, has kind of thrown some accusations around. So, uh, yeah, it seems like it all got a bit messy there. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about open source, though, is that the repos for both projects are still available. So anyone wanting to continue development to use this can go and look at all the information in the source code themselves. Speaking of, if you go to the GitLab page for Oscar, there is one little criticism that I would levy, and that's I can't find any way to submit an issue. And in the software, there is also a report an issue button, but all it does is bring up a dialogue that says reporting issues is not yet implemented. So it does seem like it's on the to-do list 
and hopefully it gets there because open source software should be able to have issues reported against it so that it can improve in the future. The question I have for you is, what use is all of this data and all of this analysis? Can you actually do anything to improve your sleep as a result of it? Or is it just information for its own sake? Well, what use is any sleep tracking? Realistically, I can take a look at what my sleep patterns are, make sure that my condition isn't worsening, and I can understand more about myself as a result, which I think is all valuable information. I suppose you can see the the various effects of, you know, if you have a large meal before you sleep or if you drink a few too many beers or whatever, that must have an effect on your sleep that you can easily track with this. Oh, it 100% does. And I'll be interested to see what changes happen as I get deeper into this. But since I've installed this, I've been pulling the data every single day and seeing what's changed overnight. And, you know, naps are definitely way different than full sleep cycles. And uh, just there are little differences here and there every day that I have yet to really pin down what they're about. But it is definitely something that I'm finding very, very interesting. Well, I'll definitely be recommending this to my friend who has sleep apnea, so we'll have to see how he gets on. But with that, I suppose we better get out of here. You can go to choose slash subscribe to get all the future episodes and choose slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. You can find us like always on Twitter. I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at L O punk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Bye.